Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. We are approaching our 200th episode, 200 shows, three years of Beyond Well, the podcast. We'd like to visit some of these episodes that you might have missed. We did several shows on anxiety and we're going to highlight some of the best in the next few weeks. Before we get going, we'd like to thank Active Recovery TMS for the support of our show. TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest with neighborhood offices near you to make it convenient and they work with your insurance to make sure you're covered. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. As we highlight past episodes we've done on anxiety, let's revisit this incredible discussion with filmmaker Harris Goldberg. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. A few years ago, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting Harris Goldberg. He's a director, a writer, and producer. He co-wrote the comedy Deuce Bigelow, and in 2007 wrote and directed the film Numb, inspired by his own experiences of mental health. Harris is one of those people who goes very deep into his own story of how he realized that he had debilitating anxiety and OCD and what he's done in the interim to build up a level of awareness to help him understand when he's about to have an anxiety attack and the things that he can do every day to live well. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with my friend, Harris Goldberg. So Harris Goldberg, I finally get to see you again after so many years. It's wonderful to just look at your face, even if it isn't Zoom, which I tend to really hate, but today I'm loving it. Thank you. I look much better. I'm much more handsome on Zoom. I wanted to talk to you, not just because I really respect who you are in the film industry, and I um, respect what you've done in terms of shining a light on uh, the issue of anxiety, but also just because I think right now it is a particularly crucial time to talk to people who are willing to be open about their own experience with anxiety. And you are probably one of the most accomplished, high-performing people with anxiety that I know. How does it feel right now in this day and age when two-thirds of Americans are reporting severe anxiety and depression to have been a person who coped with it all along? <laughs> um, I feel for them. It's actually kind of comforting in a way because on a personal level, you feel like, oh, wow, this is actually, it's not just good for the longest time. You, you think it's just you or it's a very small group and you think there's something wrong or you have to hide it. And then you realize, hey, wait a minute, this is the human condition. Mm. And if you change the script enough and put enough stress on somebody, anyone's you know susceptible to it. And then you become kind of uh, valuable to other people because you've been through it. So you can kind of nudge them along a little bit and go, wait a minute, it's not the end of the world. So I think people would be very strange if they weren't feeling anxiety ridden right now, but are people reaching out to you because you had gone public with the fact that you'd suffered with anxiety? Well, I wouldn't have thought so, but in the last, you know, especially three months, people that I thought had it together, that were so centered and, and I thought, oh, if I could just be more like so-and-so. They call and not only are they asking, what do I do? They have that sort of initial penny dropping, panicky 
what is happening because they've never really experienced that kind of weight before. And it's astounding from my standpoint because it's like, you know, the veil is pulled off and you go, oh my God. On a personal level, it makes yourself feel a little vindicated that it wasn't all for naught. And then you feel like you're, oh, maybe maybe there's a reason that you, you had to go through some of this and here it is. And you, you find you're very helpful because they're vulnerable. I loved our initial conversation when you talked with me about how your anxiety came on and how you built this wall of wellness for yourself. And I think about my friends who suffer from incredible anxiety, how often you feel like the wall is built and then it comes crumbling down again and then you have to build it back up again. So will you take people through that process, Harris, of when you very first started feeling like the world was falling out from underneath your feet and then what you did to try to build it back? Sure. Looking back, I was probably always an anxious kid because my, I, and I realized my mother was very anxious. And so I, how I dealt with it was A, being funny. So I was always performing in some way, or I was being athletic, distracting it by being obsessive about stuff. Like, um, you know, I was a ranked tennis player, but I, I wouldn't play four hours a day. I played eight hours a day because I would try to exhaust myself. And I didn't realize it was all dealing with this sort of underlying fear-based anxiety. And when I came to Los Angeles from Canada, and I had a, uh, I followed, I have an older brother who's very successful, 10 years older. And so immediately I thought, oh, I have to live up to this guy. Mm -hmm. And I had a, some early success, which I thought would be a relief, but it put a lot of pressure on me because I started to think, well, what if I don't have the goods? What if this was an accident? What if I was lucky? So suddenly I'm in this sort of Los Angeles fishbowl. And because of my tennis, I met a high level of executives and agents and celebrity early on as sort of a glorified ringer. So in other words, I was always the fourth people wanted to play with because they knew they could win. But because I was also getting work as a, quote, screenwriter, it was kind of the perfect mix. So I started to hang out with people that I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. And it was really stressful because I had a car I drove from Canada. I remember everyone had these beautiful Jaguars and things. And we'd go to these private tennis courts and people's houses. And they would all park there. And I would park down the street and walk up. And, and when I was leaving, I would pretend, okay, see you later. Like, this is one of my cars. And, and then I'd run down the, you know. So <laughs> I, was, I was perpetuating more stress. Uh, I kept pushing for, for about two years. And I was really hustling. I managed to, to get the first couple of scripts that I wrote somehow made. And I think it was more out of luck than anything. I don't know how they did. I didn't realize that was rare. So suddenly I'm signed to, you know, William Morris and I'm working and suddenly now I'm getting these big studio movies and that puts a lot of pressure on me. Then my older brother, who I kind of worship at this point, who's done very, very well, comes to me and says, um, do you want to partner up with me? Which was a godsend to me. It was almost as if I'm safe. I've got my, the one guy that I look up to and worship wants to be my partner. So I said, yes. So I gave up my current situation and went with him. So now I'm, I'm as happy as I've ever been because I feel protected. I'm hanging out with my brother. There's an identity. And that was the best time of my life. But also I had never done a drug before or drank or anything. I was the cleanest guy in the world. When I was with him, I, somebody had given me a, uh, I said, oh, why don't you try some marijuana? And trying to be cool, I kind of did it. And, you know, I, I couldn't stop laughing. And it was kind of weird. But I, I thought, oh, you know, okay, I get it. 
and then kept working. And then my brother and I set some stuff up. And just as quickly, he decided to go back to his previous situation, which was a good one. And we separated. Mm. So suddenly now, here I am by myself with these projects that we had set up. And I no longer have the protection and the, the whole, it was sort of like a little bit like my whole world. Was like, but I was a survivor. So I drove forward ahead and I started to work even harder. I'd say another 16 months of this. And I sold a, another project in what's called a bidding war. So there were more than one studio bidding on it, which is very rare. But it was exciting. But it was a stressful day. I went out that night and I, uh, I just wanted to kind of turn my brain off because it was racing. And so I stupidly, but I smoked some marijuana. And I had a panic attack on it. And I'd never had one before where, where I felt out of, I didn't feel I was in control where I could run away from it. I couldn't laugh my way out of it. I couldn't perform my way out of it. I couldn't exercise my way out of it. I was just had to deal with this, whatever, this intense anxiety. Anyway, um, after that was over, I was fine. I thought, I'll never do that again. You know, I learned my lesson. So I worked another month. And then I decided I have to go back to Canada and take a break because it's been three years or three and a half years of constant Los Angeles smoke and mirrors living where I'm sort of pretending to be something I'm not, but I'm in the game and, you know, I'm living this weird life. Yeah. So as soon as I touch down back home and I see my parents and my friends and where I was born, I completely just, I couldn't stop crying. I was getting these massive headaches, panic attacks, going to the hospital because I couldn't breathe. And I thought, I didn't know what was happening. And that basically started a multi-year recovery where I had to deal with, I think, the predisposition of that anxiety that I built up as a kid that got exacerbated in Los Angeles. And now I had nowhere to run. So I actually had to now do the work on myself that I always was running away from. It's fascinating to me too, just because I've been doing a lot of research just on the extraordinary THC content in New Pot and how many people are pushed into their either their first break from reality or their first panic attack or their first true psychosis after smoking pot. And it just doesn't seem like there's quite enough information for people when it seemed to be so benign, you know, that if you have any predisposition, if you're already sort of genetically tuned toward anxiety, that can be the thing that breaks you. Do you look back on that now and go, oh, Maybe yeah. that, yeah, I'm sure. It's a bane of my, I, I wish I, I, now I've done a lot of research on this, deal with marijuana, THC. Now it's so strong yeah. because the way they do it that I think it's a very dangerous thing. I think you're playing with fire. Mm-hmm. When I see kids do it, I think there's a message out there that they say, oh, it's just, it's like drinking. Well, it's not because it, ha- it has the ability to really shake things up. I don't think it can necessarily cause something i don't th- i don't know if there's causation but what it does is it can create a situation an event that shakes you up enough it's kind of like the straw that you know would it have happened anyway probably after time but it makes it happen a lot quicker and then you tend to hang like i hung everything on that experience if i just didn't do that experience i would have been fine but i really wouldn't have because when i look back on the story and the script i go oh, i was kind of i could see myself 
-hmm. heading toward where I had totally. If if not that, it, it's likely it would have been something else. But you always wonder, like, how much longer could you have played the game? How much longer? But where we are now, nice nice timing for you actually to be at home and the love of your family. So talk about the things that you started doing, Harris, to sort of build back your psyche. Well, there are two things. I, I'd always covered the physical pretty well. Mm -hmm. So I always, you know, worked out way too much, you know, instead of two hours, I woke up four hours, you know, mm -hmm. but your body can only take so much. And then you go, geez, I feel awful. So I started to have to look at my patterns and thinking, you know, what does that mean? Look at my OCD patterns. I, I know you talk a lot about, uh, there's, there was, when I started looking into this cognitive behavior therapy was sort of just coming up. Now there's ACT therapy, which is a refined version of that. Yeah. So I've seen as the years go by, but basically it's kind of like you can, you can only change the way you react to things. You can't really change the outside events that are or the harshness of life or whatever, or the feelings of other people. But the one thing you do have an ability to train yourself is to, uh, how am I going to react against this? The secret to me was instead of, I did all the reading that everybody does. I went to see the therapists of all kinds and did every version you could think of. And I get to be very friendly with my therapist. So they give me that little extra help. Like, hey, can I call you on a Saturday? <laughs> they text you at 2 a.m. Hey, yeah. can I call you? Is it okay? Go, yeah, right. sure. I'll pick yeah. the movie. If you can just, uh, is this okay? Yeah. But then I started to um, think of it like an exercise, like how I learned how to, hey, how would you work on a forehand? Well, I go on the court, change the technique, do it over and over until it becomes habit. And it was hard work. And I, I said, well, why should my mental state be any different? Mm. So I started to look at changing as if I was learning a new physical sport. Mm. And that sort of made it more like I could track it better. I could, instead of it being sort of like, oh, is this just airy-fairy psychology kind yeah. of stuff? I started to see it as a very practical, oh, here's a negative thought. Oh, look, I'm reacting to this actually... I'm adding danger to this reaction. Oh, look, I got, and now I, and I, I could kind of see it. And then after you started to become habitual, I went, oh, I did that 10 times today? Wow, 10 times. And then I started to lower it and lower it and lower it to where it became like a checklist of things. And that turned into habit. Wow. And the longer that the habit took, that's when the symptoms start, started to go down because your body's going, oh, we're not in danger. It's uh -huh. okay. He's got it under control. We can... We can regress here and let him handle it now. Yeah. And then the symptoms, whatever you have, dissipate. I mean, I know that's very lamatic, but that's kind of what I found. It, it just sounds like the framework for well-being to me. But as you were speaking, it, it made me so cognizant that as a film director, you're often looking through your lens with the capability of observing, just this impartial observation of what you're seeing, right? And in some ways, in order to reclaim uh, mental stability and mental well-being, you have to take on the observer role. You, you have to completely be able to see what's happening in your mind and be able to assess it without buying into one version of it or another. So I'm wondering if the reason you were able to do that is because you have seen this impartiality through your lens for so long. Absolutely. I couldn't direct if I didn't have gone through what I went through. Yeah. What, what you're forced to do is when you're in a situation, I don't mean to preach here. I'm just talking about myself. Yeah. I was in a situation, social situation or a meeting or that was important. And I was having a lot of anxiety. Well, I knew I had to keep it together. 
So I felt the anxiety. Go, oh, there it is. It's knocking on my door. It's going, I'm here. Now I could address it and go, oh my God, he's here. He's at the party. I don't want him at the party. Or I could just go, well, there, he's here, but I'm just going to ignore him and I'm not going to give him any. Mm. You're there, but do what you want. I'm not going to address it. Yeah. And so that way I didn't have to think about it or analyze it or weigh it or go try to change it. I went, it's there. I can't control if it's here or not. It comes when it wants to come. But the one that controls, how am I going to react to it? Mm. That was the biggest overall yeah. thing to help me a lot. Because I, when I first did cognitive behaviorism, it would make you look at every thought, analyze it, weigh it. And I'm going, I have 10,000 thoughts a day. I'm going out of my mind. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. Just let me give it the cold shoulder for a bit. So you have this framework for how you can live a productive life and and keep your mental health in check. And then the pandemic hits. And I think every one of us had to experience in some really profound way the lack of control that that caused. And then you have the isolation from quarantining that causes someone with OCD to be even more on task with their OCD. And then you have Hollywood completely shut down and all of your production schedule goes. So you have economic concern on top of it. So what did you do when these layers of things were starting to be pulled out from underneath you to be, to be able to just survive through this period? Well, that's a good question, Sheila. And um, first of all, it's scary. Okay. Because, yeah. And what I noticed is the people that weren't writers, that relied on the machine needed a production to work on, or they were needed a studio, or they were an agent. I saw them start to really crumble. Mm. But the one thing I had was I could write. Mm. So in the five, six, seven months, I basically took. I have a list of ideas that I've always wanted to check off. Like, oh, there's that idea, and there's this story, and this story. So I wrote uh, two features and three pilots. And like every day I would wake up and I would say, okay, well, I can't leave anywhere. So I'm going to create a schedule where I you know, wake up at 6.30, write three hours, exercise, write another four hours, maybe go for a walk and then watch a documentary. And then before I knew it, I had those three. It was the most productive, prolific time. And not only did I finish all three, but because I had no outside, I had no agents that I was trying to impress. I had no buyers I was going, trying to I was just writing what I wanted to write. Out of those three, I set all three up uh, over Zoom, which was a step, which was way more uh, effective than if I was ever in Los Angeles. Yeah. Going to meetings and doing the old pitch routine thing where everyone's distracted and they're looking at their iPhones. And this way it was just like, here's the script. It's done. Read it. Everyone's at home. So they have nothing to do. So they're, they actually wow. are reading it. And so for me, it was sort of a, I, I'm not going to say I liked it because it it's terribly lonely. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. But for the way that I, you know, as a single guy who's, which I wish I wasn't, but as a single guy, you know, it's, it's how do you fill up your day? It's fascinating to me that you returned to the over performance that you used when you were a professional tennis player, you know, that you... You didn't just write for three hours a day. You wrote for seven. You didn't yeah. just play tennis for three hours a day. You played it for six. That's in some ways, I, I just love the theory that we've all built up and even some of our habits that are very, very discouraging and, and can be harmful to us if used in the right circumstance can be quite magical 
And it sounds like you tapped back into that intensity and focus to be able to actually, I think you're winning quarantine, Harris. I think you are winning. Now you are um, taking on a role as a professor at a university in Canada. And I am sure you're coming into contact with young people who are probably feeling a lot of unease about their futures. Um, has your experience with anxiety helped? Actually, when I started, because it was an accident, I, I, my, my, the university I graduated from, I visited them a, about a couple of years ago and had a week where I did a bunch of seminars. And the president was a real film buff. And he said, oh, this would be great to have this as a, have you come back as a visiting professor. And I never thought much of it. And so anyway, they finally asked me and I thought, oh, that should you know, be fun to teach a few kids. And then um, when I took the job for a semester, he suddenly had 300 kids in the class. And so I was pretty petrified. So at first I thought, oh my God, my anxiety or whatever, whatever, whatever you have, is, uh, that's going to be a detriment. Mm. I'm not going to be able to handle this. But what I found was it was actually a strength because the kids were very vulnerable. Mm. They were frightened in a lot of ways. They were um, questioning things, you know. And, and I found that the more that I was personal with them and opened up, the more they opened up and, and we had a great relationship and I became very tight with the, with the group of them because I wouldn't consider myself a professor in any way. I'm not particular, I don't, have, I don't have a teaching degree. I mean, I've done a lot of it, but it's all practical experience. But I really enjoy connecting as again, the observer, I'm observing these kids and I see they have talent and they have abilities and they have dreams and they have things they can do, but they're not doing it because of preconceived things. And I go, oh, they're doing what I did when I was, yeah. oh, wow. Right, exactly. And then, I all, yeah. then I'll use a metaphor of like something you know, that I've done, a struggle or something, and, and then they sort of feel comforted that, oh, because I keep forgetting they, they're looking at me as a professor. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Know, he's Sidney Poitier and this yeah. is the same blood, so. I also just think it's um, incredibly refreshing to see the difference in the way young people view the world and what they can accomplish. It's always energizing to me to work with young people. I just, I, I feel more optimistic about where the world is headed when I hang out with them. Well, and I think despite the stresses of the modern day overload of information technology, they have more stuff open to them than when I went to Los Angeles, it was like two or three ways of but now there's so many avenues that if you just have some motivation, I mean, yeah. these kids can do anything. Yeah, on their iPhones, right? I mean, that's what's so wonderful, right? It seems to me that the pace, the pressure, the stress of Los Angeles is one of those things that could lead a person who had a vulnerability toward anxiety or depression to really be tipped over. When we get out of pandemic, have you thought about how you will cope with what is undoubtedly going to be more pressure as people attempt to get back into the game and be thriving in this new environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought unendingly about that, actually. Mm -hmm. Actually, having been away, I was only supposed to be away for 12 or 10 weeks. You know, I went back to Canada. I've been here for the entire time. And California and Los Angeles has changed a lot. It's not the Hollywood that I went into. I think I lucked out and got the tail end of what, you know, old Hollywood was like, where mm. it was rich characters and things were, deals were made and face-to-face -face and all that. Now it's, it's a different thing. It's changed socially, economically. There's a, 
lot of negative things there. Mm-hmm. So part of me is starting to question, do I even want to go back? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and or I, do and you I, need I, to? Or do I need to? I, I'd yeah. love to be in a relationship now because I'm, I'm, I'm at a stage where I'm like, what happened? <laughs> How can I be single? This is crazy. So I'm thinking more about that. Yeah. And also I probably feel, as much as I like creating and writing, I think I, it, it, you know, I might be starting to kind of get, no, I'm not going to say irrelevant because story is story. And a good story is a good story. Mm. But business is done in a way in marketing where it's a different animal mm. to what I was brought up in. Mm. And so I'm starting to kind of, I'm still driven to want to do something great. I, you know, just like anyone else. And so I continue to, to write and I say to myself, well, if one of these movies or TV shows gets done and they become very successful, great. Yeah. So I just focus on the creating of the content and I can do that anywhere. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you, know, you got me at a good tipping point here. Yeah, that's awesome. We talked um, last episode about something called the locus of control, which is every human being, if you can actually really start focusing on the things within your power, having a wonderful conversation with a friend, taking a walk, petting your dog, like being present to the moments that you can control, it's a much easier way to manage times that are really stressful. And so I'm so grateful um, to you for taking the time out today because I think a lot of people are going to really appreciate the in-depth way that you described what you went through and how you're dealing with it now, Harris. Well, you're a a blessing and you're one of my favorite people on the planet. So uh, it's very easy to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks again. And best of luck with all of your projects. I can't wait until we can hug in person again. I would love that. If I could go through the Zoom thing, Right, exactly. All right. Our sponsors, of course, would love to hear from you. And if you can give us a thumbs up on where you listen to podcasts, we'd sure appreciate it. Make it a great day. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.